0: it is seriously pouring at my house so i think throughout this episode people are just going to hear like those go to sleep files the white noise machines yeah it's going to be like a white noise machine for people please don't fall asleep from the beautiful percussive sound of rain happening in my background
1: Welcome to this episode of Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Rachel
0: Stewart. And I'm Larry Womack.
1: Well, Larry, welcome back to our ongoing saga, highlighting the Lawrence v. Texas case, a.k.a. the Supreme Court case that made gay sex legal in all 50 states.
0: Which personally has been a goal of mine for quite some time.
1: Good for you. So in the first episode, we talked about the pervasive homophobia that was 90s America. In the second episode, we are going to talk about the cast of characters that were involved in the arrest itself and its immediate aftermath. We'll be talking to Lane Lewis, the activist who first recognized the case's potential, and convinced the defendants to take it all the way to the Supreme Court, which, as we're going to find out, was much trickier than it sounds. And in the third episode, we'll be talking about the case itself as it made its way to the highest court in the land. In part four, we'll also be talking to Paul Smith, the attorney who argued the case in front of the Supreme
0: Court. And man, that was that was a great interview. They're both fantastic interviews. So please listen to these two episodes. In this episode, we're gonna meet one really kick-ass queer, two pretty kick-ass queers, and one who just royally sucks. Honestly, like, completely <laughs> he
1: is he is so bad that it actually helps our representation. Because it shows you just how fucking terrible gay people can be as well.
0: I was glad he got arrested. (laughs) He doesn't get arrested for gay sex, I promise. No. He gets arrested for something legitimate. Yes. But he is arrested by some cops who, unfortunately, we have to meet before we get to the kick-ass queers. Yes. Now, in the last episode, we discussed Harris County, Texas, and some really ugly stuff that happened there in the 1980s to the queer community. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, I really recommend that you go back and do that because those specific things are going to inform this episode. In the meantime, let's talk about these piece of shit cops. Excellent. By the time we reached the late 90s, the Houston Police Department had been working with gay organizations for training and policies about interacting with the LGBT community. Sort of like cultural competence and sensitivity safety type stuff unfortunately just outside the city limits where john lawrence lived you're under the jurisdiction of the harris county sheriff's department
1: why am i getting a
0: real dukes of hazard feeling you wish you wish for boss Hogg. <laughs> their track record on civil liberties in general is just fucking horrific in the five years after the arrest we'll be talking about, Harris County deputies fired on unarmed people 750 times. That's
1: totally normal
0: in a game of Call of Duty. I mean, it's, it's just so horrible. Cook County, Illinois, which includes Chicago, in the same time period, guess how many times that happened there? 400. None. No times. <laughs>
1: I'm so sorry, Cook County. I just, I stereotyped you. <laughs>
0: well, when you start at 750, you're thinking, oh, maybe half, maybe a quarter, or something well, like yeah, that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's... Zero times. Cool. In the <sighs> same time period, Harris County deputies actually shot people 50 times, which means they're not very good shots either. Because if you figure...
1: <laughs> this is like, are they stormtroopers? Right. Jesus Christ.
0: Because that's the 750 who were unarmed, plus any armed ones they also might have shot at. That is about three and a half times as many people as were shot by the NYPD in the same time period. This isn't really densely populated. These are the suburbs. And they're just like, yee shoot everybody.
1: I-, I was gonna say, if I didn't know better, it's like, you know, you always hear the theories about how they have like traffic ticket quotas. It sounds like they have shooting people quotas.
0: <sighs> shooting at people quotas, certainly. I don't know that they're pew, ever going to make that shooting people quota. Um, oh, seriously? The culture, also very socially backward, as you would probably imagine, given the fact that they're shooting at unarmed people all the time. <laughs> um, they faced a number of lawsuits from members of their own department who claimed they'd been subject to racial discrimination. Oh, lovely. Officers regularly used racial slurs, homophobic language, and even bragged about gay bashing usually without receiving reprimands, though some were punished for using racial slurs and bragging about being in the KKK. And the worst of the bunch from every single account I have read and also the interviews that we did was an officer named Joseph Quinn. Mm -hmm. Quinn bragged to author Dale Carpenter that he had the largest internal affairs file in the department. This is something he bragged about. He perpetrated crimes against citizens of the county so often that the department instituted a separate procedure for handling reports against him, wherein they bypassed the normal routes and went straight to internal affairs. The Quinn Protocol. Right. This is this department that is shooting at people constantly, using racial slurs all the time, being like, this guy sucks, kind of. We should, (laughs) (laughs) But, but still employing him.
1: Yes, yes. Which is not a unique thing. When you look at a lot of officers shooting civilians, oftentimes one of the commonalities is that they have very thick disciplinary files, either with the department they're in or in other departments where they finally were let go and they just went the next town over and got a job.
0: It is crazy to me that you don't need a state or federal license to be a cop. That they can revoke and then you can never work anywhere again. Nuts. And you know why
1: we don't have that? We wouldn't have enough people. And that tells you just exactly how broken that system is.
0: A county clerk, who we will discuss later, Nathan Broussard, called (laughs) Quinn, quote, "...the worst nightmare I think anybody would ever come across. The human side of him didn't exist." Jesus. He would regularly book people for minor stuff that most officers would just issue a ticket for or not even bother with. Justice of the Peace, Mike Parrott, who will come up again later, said that, for example, school kids would fight and maybe push and shove. Quinn would give them a ticket, throw them to the ground, handcuff them and cavity search them. Uh, Are you kidding me? Yeah. And like that's. That's sexual assault of children. Unless you have a really, really good reason to perform a cavity search on anybody. Anybody. You don't do it. That's disgusting. And Quinn especially liked to arrest and abuse women who challenged his masculinity or made him feel small. As an example, Mike Parrott told Dale Carpenter that Quinn had once been hired as a private security guard for an event. So keep in mind, he's not on duty. He's not in uniform. A coach for one of the teams parked in the disabled spot so that she could unload some equipment. He told her to move. She said she'd only be there a few minutes and pointed to the disability tag on her car so she can legally park there anyway.
1: So she could be there for as
0: long as she wants to. Right. And he says, you don't look disabled. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Because he's ignorant as hell, ordered her to leave. And when she rightly laughed in his face and said, What are you, a -a rent-a-cop? Oh, shit. He pushed her against the car, arrested her, and took her to jail. And he did this in front of a justice of the peace, who, I don't know, did he not try to stop him? Because that's not enforcing any law, that's kidnapping. Quinn himself bragged about another incident to Dale Carpenter which I think is even more disturbing. This woman called the department because her estranged husband wouldn't return their child. When he arrived, she's on the phone with the husband. He tells her to hang up and she's like, no, I've, I've got my husband on the phone. I need you to talk to him. And he says, no, nah, I didn't come here to talk on the phone. Hang up or I'm going to leave. And she's like, fuck you then leave. And so he replied, and it does feel implied to me that he was inventing this. Well, you seem a little drunk. It's probably not in the best interest of the child to be with you. And he started to leave. So the woman comes out of her apartment and calls him a fat motherfucker. Oh, boy. He says he's going to arrest her. And she says, you're not man enough. Shit. This is a theme in even stories that he tells. He is very fragile when it comes to his masculinity. (sighs) So this is not a man whose dick works, right?
1: No, no. This is Mm -hmm. a guy who has a lifted truck And a Punisher sticker and a Let's Go Brandon Mm. and a Blue Lives Matter sticker.
0: Yeah, I would put money on it that he cannot perform in bed with a woman because he cannot handle any comments from a woman in that direction.
1: He's giving off yeah, strong marine dad in American beauty vibes there. Mm. But honestly, the guy sounds like a sociopath. He sounds like an impotent sociopath you know and that and that the only way that he actually does get his jollies is through power and control and violence and none of that is a recipe for being a good peace officer maybe we have higher qualifications for being a cop so that people like that get filtered out before they become people with that kind of power and a firearm
0: yeah this is someone who definitely belongs in prison not minding one which by the way I believe he was later sort of busted down to corrections officer. Well, God, yeah. So the other cops involved in the case, they're all terrible too. The best of the bunch, in Dale Carpenter's estimation, seems to be this guy named William Lilly, and he still very much sucks. He expressed in interviews an antipathy toward effeminate men in particular, gay men in general. Lilly at one point was also demoted for some incident or other. There were also officers Donnie Tips and Ken Landry who were less involved because they don't claim to have seen any sex. But I assure you, they also just unbelievably suck. None of these men are particularly enlightened. And in fact, they all strike me as pretty compelling reasons why cops should be required to have four-year degrees and a lot of conflict resolution and sensitivity training and psych checks before we give them guns and a six-figure salary. (laughs) So imagine being a gay man in this country, in that county, interacting with those deputies, because that is what is going to happen. Lane Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to know who you were before you became involved.
2: In the early nineties, I was a uh, social worker and I was working for IntraCare Hospital, which was in the Houston Medical Center Houston Medical Center, if you don't know, is one of the finest medical centers in the world. Wealthy people from the Middle East and all over the world come to Houston for its medical center. There was a psychiatric center there called Pinterger Hospital, and they had the first LGBT specifically targeted program for people with HIV, drug abuse, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, They were the first hospital to specifically market to that community. And the marketing director came to me and said, hey, I have reason to believe that you might be gay and we need someone to help market this program. How would you like to (laughs) put on a suit and go downstairs and do that for a living instead of up here providing counseling services and tech services and things? I was uh, head of marketing for that program and this would have been 90, 91 around in there. I was about 22 years old at the time. Well, part of my responsibility was to go out into the city at various organizations. And so as a result, I got more and more involved in the political side of queer rights. Around this time period, I heard a remarkable speech by a guy named William A. Scott. Bill Scott was a social worker out of New York that had transplanted down to Houston And he identified uh, a series of gaps of services. Keep in mind, at that time, you didn't have Americans with Disabilities Act. You didn't have the ADA, so it was perfectly legal if a doctor or a lawyer or someone didn't want to treat you because of real or perceived HIV status, right? In his speech, he talks about all these programs that he helped set up. There were two areas that were of concern to him that he thought were gaps in services, right? One was for the elderly, aging, queer population. But of course, that wasn't a particularly needed service at that time. Why? They were all dying. It's 1991. They're dead or dying, right? Because of AIDS. We're still in the thick of that. And then youth services, services for particularly homeless, runaway youth. And that struck me. Because I had done my internship when I was studying to do social work at Covenant House. You have to keep in mind in Montrose at that time, if you were a queer street kid going onto the street, there were three places you were going to go. You were either going to go to New York, L.A., or Houston. Believe it or not, Montrose was a beacon in the country for queer kids uh, back in the 80s and early 90s. And so I saw firsthand the discrimination of queer kids. And I had read a study that had come out of Congress that said at that time that 40% of all kids on the street were gay, by or questioning. And that within 14 days of a kid hitting the streets after being kicked out of their homes voluntarily or involuntarily would be on drugs prostituting hiv positive or some combination of the three and these stats were mind-blowing to me and I, as i was working with at covenant house i was seeing these kids either being flat out pushed out the door or being allowed to be bullied to the point that they pushed themselves out the door so i walked up to bill afterwards i introduced myself to him i said hey i'm Lane lewis i'm with intercare hospital and I used to work at Covenant House and why hasn't there been any treatment facilities for these kids? And he said, internalized homophobia. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> and he said that anytime individuals attach their names to an organization that is dealing with queer kids, then there's the fear of being labeled pedophile, or you have ulterior motives for doing these things. And i said i'm 22 can i cuss on your show i don't know i guess you can oh yeah it. this is the cleanest episode yet so far
0: <laughs> yeah so far <laughs> let's, let's
2: so be clear. far this is the cleanest episode yeah so i said well fuck bill i'm you know 22 years old i'll put my name on it i don't care he and i war-gamed it out and we we talked about what needed to be done and bill said this is what you're going to do lane you're going to go home and get a three ring binder and i want you i'm giving you a million of dollars of imaginary money go home and imagine what a program would look like for street kids if you had a million dollars what would you do so i went home and i built it out i typed it all up i think i had to borrow go to someone's house and borrow their computer or i think i may have still had my commodore 64 at the time i typed it all out and i sent it to him and He called me back and he said, this is brilliant. If you want to do it, I'll help you do it. It was originally called the Lewis Scott Youth Center. Why? Because what was the first thing Bill said to me? People aren't willing to put their names on it. We started with nothing. We went to Mickey who's whose name probably doesn't mean anything to you, but Mickey Rosemarin owned Tootsies. And Tootsies was the department store that dressed all the rich women in town. I did my very first professional dog and pony show in the back room of Tootsies to Mickey (laughs) freaking Rosemary. And I'm pretty sure I did a horrible job. I'm pretty (laughs) sure Bill had already called Mickey and said, we need money. And Mickey wrote me a $25,000 check on the spot. And within a few weeks, we were giving pizzas to street kids. I don't know, six, eight months, we had grown to like half a million dollar budget Believe it or not, there was no money, no federal money set aside for queer kids, street kids, none, zero. Oh, you... I fully believe that. Yeah, that's, at not, that time. that's not surprising yeah. in the least, actually. <laughs> not, 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 we, we wish we were shocked. <laughs> what we had to do was we actually had to lobby. Congress sets aside money for Ryan White money at the time. That's what it was called, Ryan White HIV Services Funds. Those funds then get allocated to whatever governing body the county says is going to expend and monitor and give away these monies, okay? The county was hoarding that money, very conservative at that time. A guy named John Lindsay and a woman named Sue Cooper were governing that money unethically, in my opinion. But there was no category. So if we wanted to provide services to HIV positive or at-risk youth, there was no money in Ryan White. Because keep in mind, kids don't have sex, right? That's the mentality. Certainly it never no. I, I would never, never. No, no. I certainly never. No. So we had to convince the county that hey, if the if the number one age group being diagnosed with new HIV cases is 28 and there's a 10 to 12 year latency period between point of affection and full-blown AIDS. At that time, it was about 12 to 15 years. Then these kids are having sex at 16, 17, 18, right? So anyway, long story short, they managed to get permission to create a category, and then we have again, applying to those grants and since we were the only game in town we were receiving the money so that's how we went from mickey rosemary's twenty five thousand dollar check to a five hundred thousand dollar budget within a year eventually it was a million dollar budget after i did that i was the executive director for an organization called the aids equity league the ael's primary objective was to assist those that had been discriminated against due to their real or perceived HIV statuses. So examples of things that I would do. Somebody calls me up and they say, hey, I've been kicked out of my apartment because they found out I was HIV. Or my landlord keeps disconnecting my air conditioner, trying to push me out of my apartment. Keep in mind, all this was legal back then. I'm telling you real things, real cases that I intervened on.
0: How do you intervene when it comes to something like that? If there's no legal leverage,
2: you put them on the news. That's what I would do. I remember one case mind blowing this young woman and her boyfriend or husband. I don't remember. She had gone in because she was pregnant. The doctor had given her an HIV test without her permission. It came back positive. He refused to treat her or the baby and refused to provide her with any referrals. So I said, bring your test results, all your medical records, and come to me. She comes to me. They're sitting in front of me. I'm looking through the medical records. And I said, well, I have some good news for you. Your doctor has misread your HIV status. You were negative. Now she's crying. She's upset. She's relieved. She's angry. She's all this shit, right? So I began calling the doctor's office to talk about his inability to read an HIV test, but also about his unwillingness to provide appropriate care and services for patients. Uh, And he wouldn't deal with me. So um, figured out where he lived. I figured out where he was (laughs) shot. (laughs) Um, And I had um, a TV crew chase him down in a supermarket parking lot on a 10 o'clock news. You know, jogging through the parking lot. So, you know, we ended up getting a letter of apology, no admission of guilt, but you know, the kind of. Well, anyway, that's the kind of stuff I did with the Equity exactly exactly. league. During this time period, I ended up on the executive committee of Stonewall 25 uh, Stonewall 25 uh, was started down in Florida by Morris kite, one of the, the founders of pride across the country. Um, uh, amazing man. I had gone to the March on Washington. There was a guy here locally named Ray Hill.
1: We just talked about Ray Hill on our last episode, right?
2: He is a fascinating man. Ray Hill had been in and out of prison for a variety of offenses, burglary. And then eventually he became this amazing queer activist back in the 70s. He knew everybody. He has had a tendency to embellish his stories. So take everything he says with a grain of salt, but he was absolutely one of my favorite people that have ever walked this earth and a brilliant, brilliant activist strategist. I bumped into him at an ACT UP action for Burroughs Welcome. I believe we were pissed off about the way they were pricing AZT at the time, right? And so we're at the Marshall in Washington, we're at the Burroughs Welcome headquarters in, in DC, and, and thousands of people and I bump into Ray. Ray grabs me by the scruff of the neck and he said, I need you to be at the Watergate Hotel tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And I went to this meeting having no clue why Uncle Ray wanted me there. And I walk in and there's about 300 people. The average age was probably 35 or 40, clearly the youngest person in the shrimp. And they were conducting a business meeting to continue the organization of Stonewall 25, which was going to take place about two or three years later in 1994. It was called the International March on the United Nations, celebrating the 25th anniversary of Stonewall. And they're electing representatives and the activists and stuff to fill certain roles. And at some point during the conversation, I got voted the youth constituent representative So I ended up being the youth constituent for about a year, creating outreach programs, trying to make contact with youth groups, try to get them involved. But eventually I aged out. Within a year, I was no longer young enough to be the youth constituent because the cutoff was 25 and I was turning 25. You'll be interested in this. Right before the Atlanta conference, um, a guy had gotten on to an American Airlines plane. And he had some AIDS dementia, I'm assuming. And um, they ended up dragging, kicking and screaming off the American Airlines. There was a huge uproar to boycott American Airlines because of their treatment of this guy. My position on American Airlines was, it is absolutely ludicrous if we think that we are going to launch a successful boycott of american airlines when you're talking about trying to get people here from every corner of the earth to participate in this international march at the united nations some u.s carriers don't even fly to some of these places right so that's not a realistic expectation in my opinion i think we ought to leverage a threat of a boycott and see what we can get that landed well within the structure of Stonewall 25. And they said, we think that's a great idea. In fact, because you're from Houston and American Airlines is launched out of Dallas, we think you should head up the committee to negotiate, which I knew nothing about. I was literally just 24 years old. So I mean, I, did they
0: provide attorneys or anything like no. that to, to help? No.
2: American okay. Airlines had hired a gay marketing firm out of DC to sort of handle this problematic event. I put together a small group of folks and we had a couple of meetings with them. Long story short, what we received from American Airlines in exchange for not boycotting them. And I don't have any notes in front of me, so this is memory as best I can. They agreed to LGBT and HIV sensitivity training to all employees, including baggage handlers on up. Of course, I have no idea if they ever actually did that back then, but that's what they agreed to on paper. They agreed to I want to say sixty-five thousand dollars in free domestic travel
0: for the organization.
2: Or... Yes, to the organization to do with whatever they want. And Stonewall Committee said, "Hey, you're no longer going to be the youth constituent. Instead, we want you to be paid staff as the executive director of the Direct Action Working Group Committee within Stonewall, and we want to give you this twenty-five thousand, and you're going to come to New York, and you're going to help us." So that's how at 24, 25 years old, I ended up living in the West Village, walking distance to my office at the Gang Lesbian Community Center. In fact, my office was right outside the Keith Herring bathroom. Y'all ever heard of the Keith Herring bathroom in the community center? Yeah. We still used it as a toilet back then.
0: <laughs> Even then, that seems really insane. Mm. Really, after
2: the mid 80s, that seems really insane. Yeah. And there was no fiction oh, okay. on it. You just went in and it was just a bathroom just happened to have Keith Herring floor to ceiling and on the mm-hmm. stalls and everything that was wild. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Stonewall 25 is over and I come back to Houston and I needed a job. So I called a guy named Jay Allen, uh, a big club owner and real estate owner in Houston. Jay owned Pacific street nightclub is where Lawrence v. Texas starts. Well, I guess those guys getting arrested is where it starts, but where your involvement begins. Yeah, that's where I was involved. So I called Jay Allen and I'm like, Jay, this is Lane. We don't really know each other, but this is my history. This is how we are acquainted. I need a job. I just got back from New York and I am busted. And he said, well, can you bartend? And I said, I've never bartended in my life, but hire me, give me your worst station in the club and I'll make it your best within a few months or you can fire me." So he said, okay,
1: all right. Lane Lewis, thank you so much for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Nice to meet you guys. Thank you, you were
0: great. You. It's wonderful to meet you. Stay in touch.
1: What I was struck by listening to his life, if you were to look at Lawrence v. Texas as the isolated incident, it can kind of feel like an every man off the street because at the time he was a bartender at a gay bar in the suburbs of Houston. So he doesn't necessarily seem like somebody who is the mover and shaker in the LGBTQ community that he actually was.
0: Just sitting there tending bar is this guy who has founded or co-founded a couple really, really important organizations that are changing lives or have changed lives.
1: What I thought was really interesting was once he would start something and it would kind of get off the ground and, and get a life of its own, he would go and sort of seek out new forms of activism, right? He was actually really good at being in tune to things where he could make that change. So we can see, you know, it's, it's looking at this and being like, hey, we need to have a youth center. You know, hey, we need to stop sort of these practices that are technically legal, but they're they're really unethical. Hey, do you have something where discrimination against queer people is happening? Take it to Lane. Like he—he's mm-hmm. got the ends. he has the experience, he has the contacts, and he's gonna be able to get it going.
0: And here's the thing: I really want listeners to know, and especially younger listeners, mm-hmm. there were—and I'm not saying this to take away from Lane's accomplishments, which are obviously pretty extraordinary—and not the usual level of activism that people were doing. Mm-hmm. But there were thousands of people doing work like this. Yes. And that's, to me, kind of what this episode is about. Yeah. Or what, what these episodes are about. Because we're going to find, as this goes on, that this is a ball being passed from person to person. And everyone is doing such hard work to make this happen.
1: Absolutely. I, you know, everyday superheroes, honestly. And it does show you sort of, If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a Greenwich village to forward gay rights.
0: (laughs) I Uh love that. (laughs) Now, very little was known about the defendants by the public for most of the trial. And the reasons for that are twofold. One, they were not the image that needed to be projected to win the case, let alone public opinion. They were not the cute gay couple next door who, you know, went to work every morning in a jacket and tie. In fact, they weren't a couple at all. And one of them often didn't live anywhere in particular. He was very itinerant. And two, the reality of what happened or didn't happen that night could have torpedoed the entire constitutional challenge. And Rachel, you know what that is. But if you could just, like, pretend to be shocked when we get there, that would be great.
1: (laughs) I will. I I will say this about them. They are messy gays. Oh, oh. They are messy gays.
0: They are incredibly messy gays.
1: And if I think there's any one thing that this story tells us is that it's okay to be messy. And just because you're messy doesn't mean that you should be discriminated against.
0: Yeah. That point that we, we made earlier, gay people happen at all walks of life.
1: Yeah, yeah, yes. you know, they. Yeah. The, we try to have, I think you did a perfect job of painting, like, the ideal gay, right, which is the gays that, you know, are in the traditional looking marriage, and have the two cars in their garage, and say toodles to the neighbors, and really just do their damnedest to fit into heteronormativity, and that's great, there's plenty of them, and that's awesome, I'm honestly, for the most part, that kind of gay, but... Gays come in all shapes and sizes, and they can be trashy and complicated and everything in between.
0: And I would say maybe a little in between was John Lawrence, who was a 55-year-old medical technologist. He had gay friends and a male partner, although I don't know that his partner lived with him. His partner seemed to spend a lot of time in Mexico, and he was out to his family, but not out at work. He was a five-year veteran who had planned to remain in the Navy, but his little brother was sent to Vietnam and his parents freaked out and persuaded him to leave the military. He said that his superiors in the Navy kind of knew, but turned a, a blind eye. People describe him as a very quiet guy who was a good neighbor and kept to himself. And people who met him only briefly over the course of the case assumed he was actually fully in the closet. They didn't even think he was out because he was just so reserved and one might say straight acting, but he also had an alcohol problem and he was arrested three times for drunk driving. And the first time he was convicted of murder by automobile. Oh God. And I can't help but think that maybe this part of his personality would explain how he came to be friends with Tyrone Garner and Robert Eubanks. Not to be confused with Bob Eubanks, the <laughs> famous old and timey game show host. Which...
1: The newlywed game just took a turn. Yeah,
0: yeah ev- even people our age aren't going to get that reference. No, they're not. Nope. The only reason that it went off in my mind was that scene in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, where she's like, where's Bob Eubanks? Oh my God. Of course. <laughs> of course, your point of reference is Elvira. Lawrence had known Robert Eubanks for 20 years. Eubanks was one of the first friends he met when he moved to the Houston area. He was 40 years old and probably what we would now call dual diagnosis, meaning that he struggled with substance abuse and mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. He was a, a rough character. He is described by every single source I have encountered as loud, angry, and drunk. He lived an itinerant life. He worked odd jobs. He didn't have a car and he slept wherever he could. And the kindest portrait I've heard of him was Lane
2: Lewis. You ever seen Dallas Buyers Club? Yeah. Yeah. That's who Royce reminded me of. When I saw that movie, I'm like, it's freaking Royce Eubanks on the screen. <laughs> okay. Uh, that gives me that gives me a picture. Yeah, he really was. He dressed like him, talked like him, acted had the same attitude as he did. The Heavy smoker. Heavy drinker, I'm sure he and Tyrone were probably into other stuff as well. And their relationship was such that Royce thought of himself as an alpha male.
0: Looking at photos of this guy, I would cross the street if I saw him walking toward me. John Lawrence later described Eubanks as cruel and quote, more like a two year old child than a grown man. In 1990, Eubanks met Tyrone Garner. Garner was also pretty itinerant, though sometimes he lived with his parents and and helped take care of them. He also worked short-term jobs, he didn't have a car, and he slept wherever he could. Garner was described by people who knew him as shy, effeminate, and sweet. But he also had a rough side. He was arrested for aggravated assault on a peace officer, for drunk driving, and twice for aggravated assault of Eubanks. And we're... that's gonna go into a dark place later. The two had a very tempestuous relationship. For example, Eubanks, who was white, was fond of calling Garner, who was black, the N-word when they would fight. So even if Garner was in all other circumstances the sweet, timid guy people describe, Mm -hmm. Eubanks more than once drew out that other side of him. This was not a healthy relationship.
1: So we've got the three key players. You've got Lawrence, you've got Eubanks, and you've got Garner. Both Garner and Lawrence sound like they have kind of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde personalities. Mm -hmm. And then you have Eubanks, which looks like we've introduced another sociopath into the
0: narrative. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I don't want to speak really badly of these guys because at the end of the day, they're kind of heroes of the story and they didn't need to be. They did not need to go through. Oh, absolutely not. But
1: I I think if we paint the picture of the fact that they were messy, they were messy individuals. And what happened to them still is not okay.
0: right. Yes, yes, you can be messy, imperfect, or even kind of shitty, and still deserve basic human rights and dignity.
1: And and that's I think a, a huge takeaway with with all of this is them as as humans brought into question whether or not they are going to be able to bring this case fully to justice because there was this fear that it was going to be judged on the merits of them as individuals in their own personal lives, rather than judging it on
0: the merits of what happened. And it is so important at this time to normalize gay people to the people who are making this decision. They're trying to say to straight people, look, we're just like you. These three guys, they're honestly not that much like the average voter. But a lot of gays and lesbians who were impacted by these laws were. And even if they weren't, they still didn't deserve to be impacted by these laws. So every month or so, Eubanks and Garner would take the bus over to Lawrence's apartment where he'd give them a little money in exchange for doing some chores. And the three of them would also sometimes go out to dinner or to bars together. On September 17th of 1998, Lawrence brought them out to help him haul away some furniture that he had decided to replace. And that was great timing for them because they had just got an apartment. Remember, they're pretty itinerant. So this this is helping them out. Yeah. They helped him set up the new furniture. They moved the old stuff into the guest bedroom. And then the next day, they were going to haul it all away. They went out to dinner. They came back to the apartment. And Eubanks sat down in the living room to drink and watch TV while Garner and Lawrence chatted and watched TV in the kitchen. So Eubanks, and remember, he's a really rough character. He has a abusive relationship with Garner, he's sitting there getting more and more drunk and he believes and is probably right that Garner and Lawrence have started to flirt. They both later said, yeah, maybe we were flirting. So at one point he gets up, he goes into the kitchen where they are, he gets some change out of a drawer and he says, I'm going to go out and get something from the vending machine. Instead of doing that, he goes out and he goes to a payphone And he calls the cops. Ugh. And he says, there's a black guy going crazy with a gun in John Lawrence's apartment. Ugh. So, I mean... Good job, Royce. Just... just, This easily could have got Garner killed. Oh, yeah. I mean, and yes. It's really hard for me to feel sympathy for Robert Eubanks. And I know that Lane Lewis definitely does... Others probably did, but he just keeps coming up as really irredeemably not great. Don't try to kill your partner by cop, like yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's uh, yeah, so unfathomably bad. It's
1: really that's a really unhealthy relationship. Mm-hmm. His actions are reprehensible,
0: and kind of throughout. Like, and
1: throughout, no, exactly. As we're going to find out, he he's just he's just a slimy
0: dude. That said, he deserves a better end than he gets
1: right and as uncomfortable as it is to talk about people like robert eubanks i think it's really important because it helps give a fuller dimension into the queer community so that we're not constantly being essentialized as either Mm -hmm. pedophiles or the perfect gays because that really feels like especially for gay men that is what you get to be gay people come in every other shape and size and everything and bob eubanks proves that
0: And a lot of those people, not Bob Eubanks, but a lot of those people, not gay, but trans Sylvia Rivera, very messy, absolutely a hero.
1: Right. Tyrone Garner. Tyrone Garner. And, And
0: John Lawrence. Absolutely. John Lawrence, who is usually not talked about as being messy, but there is this stuff. Like, if you crashed your car while drunk one time, the average person with any damn sense is not driving drunk again. And if they did that and killed someone right. and got charged with murder by automobile... Messy. And and then he goes on to get two, two more DUIs. That's... That's messy. That is that is very, very messy. That's- so he's called the cops, and who do we think is first on the scene?
1: Oh, are we going to get another example of the Quinn Protocol? Yep.
0: yep. Joseph fucking Quinn. Man, this guy. And the cops come in, guns blazing, Justifiably, because they think that there's an armed person shooting people in there. However, from the time they enter, we have three wildly different stories. Only one of them seems to be supported by other statements and facts. The other two, I'm pretty skeptical of. The first story, which is told by John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner pretty consistently, though often privately or by mistake, when they're not supposed to be talking and the reporter will ask something and Tyrone Garner will be like, well, because we weren't even. uh, And then the the attorneys would pull them away. Yep. (laughs) But pretty consistently since the arrest, they told this story privately that the cops came in while Garner was in the kitchen and Lawrence was in bed. Lawrence was surprised and pissed and like, what the fuck? What are you doing in my house? Waving guns at me and yelling at me. And he basically yelled at them a lot. The cops fixated on some pornographic James Dean fan art that was on the bedroom wall.
1: (laughs) Oh, James Dean, J-Dream.
0: Yeah, it was James Dean nude with like a large erect phallus. So they seem icked out. You know, most people would be a little uncomfortable with that, but they're also having a homophobic reaction, right?
1: Well, right. I mean, and this is in some dude's bedroom. I could understand if he had it printed on a T-shirt and was volunteering at the children's hospital, but they've just busted into this guy's bedroom.
0: Right. So if you bust into someone's bedroom, you might find out that they have terrible erotic art. Don't do that. (laughs) And if you do see that, don't do what these cops did. They get icked out and they arrest all three men. They arrest Eubanks for filing a false report, which... Which is actually true. That's actually the right... uh, That's the right arrest, yes. And they arrest Garner and Lawrence for homosexual conduct. Uh Oh. And I will say this version of the story is also supported by what they were wearing when they left. Because Garner had pants, Lawrence had just his underwear, but this is exactly the story that they told. Then we have Officer Lily's story, he says they were both in the bedroom, and he witnessed maybe oral sex. He's not sure. He says it was hard to see. He did say that Garner was wearing pants, which would that would be consistent at least. But mostly Lily's story is just nonsensical. It's like a child trying to describe sex. This is an actual quote from him. The black guy was giving him head, or they was doing each other from behind. I don't remember. <laughs> doing each other from behind <laughs> like what does that even mean it, while he's wearing pants
1: while he's wearing pants or they're giving head I, it,
0: it, uh, how do you confuse those <laughs> things it's like you know I don't remember maybe they were penetrating each other which finally <laughs> from behind or you know maybe the one was just blowing the other I don't know I don't know which one it was
1: oh my goodness yeah that's, so this, that's okay all right
0: yeah, I think people who've interviewed him and stuff are way, way too kind to Officer Lily. Then we have Officer Quinn's story. And are you are you ready for some serious shit? Oh, God, yes. So, <gasps> Quinn says that even though the officers came in yelling and shouted repeatedly who they were and why they were there, when they came into the bedroom, both men were naked, Garner was on all fours, Lawrence was standing behind him, and they were fucking Quinn says he then shouted at him two times with his gun pointed at them and they kept going. He then holstered his gun and ordered them again to stop. They didn't. And in fact, he says that Lawrence locked eyes with him and held eye contact while he continued quote, well in excess of a minute. Finally, he says the two had to be pulled apart. This, 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 okay. I'm sorry,
1: officer Quinn. But this sounds like some really bad fanfic that you wrote about what yeah, you would a masturbatory hold. fantasy. That's literally a masturbatory fantasy, especially when it's... you take into consideration wild speculation, because you know what? Fuck this guy. This sounds like a projection of what he hoped would happen and that... If the other guys hadn't been there, he probably would have,
0: quote unquote, shown them how it's done. (laughs) That is how I wish I would react if someone burst in on me having sex. It's not how I would. It's not not how I I think anyone would.
1: Here's the thing. I I don't possess the equipment, so I, I don't actually know. But I have the feeling that if I was having sex and I had a penis and a group of people Busted and screaming with guns, I feel that I would become flaccid so quickly that that thing would noodle out of whatever orifice I had it shoved in. I would not be able to aggressively alpha pump for another minute while locking eyes with another dude. But then again, I don't know. I don't have a dick.
0: And if something like that were to occur, they would have to be on serious drugs. TCP. And you would test them for that and arrest them for that. This just, to me, is not something that happened. No. That's, the, again, a masturbatory fantasy. The cop's stories don't even agree with themselves. In Lily's case, not even himself.
1: <laughs> they, they were fucking and sucking from behind. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <They> were... <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> that guy, man interviewers are so kind to him like oh he seems so gentle and sweet and i'm like well he's a liar
1: <laughs> and he has obviously never pleasured a woman because none of what he's talking about is possible with any gender again
0: yeah meanwhile the defendants were privately and for reasons we're going to go into a lot pretty consistent since the arrest that there was no sex happening between them they never had sex they never would have sex after the arrest and that is why they initially pleaded not guilty, which was great because they pleaded not guilty. We can now get married and have legal sex. and
1: No, sex. that's exactly Although, right.
0: So really, you know, thank you, you pieces of shit cops for lying. We appreciate that.
1: It is so funny to see how many antiheroes are actually involved with this story mm-hmm. because like Robert Eubanks, not a great guy, Mm-mm. Tyrone and, John Lawrence, complicated fellows, the cops ranging from atrocious to what's wrong with you, right? Mm-hmm. And through all of this, we do get the through line of where we are now with a tremendous amount of our rights and abilities to move about a little bit freer as gay people. Mm-hmm. So big, 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 big shout out to the antiheroes out there.
0: In order to mount a constitutional challenge to this law, it had to stay in the courts. If they had just pleaded not guilty, they would have won, given the facts of the case and the officers involved. The judges in that county would have said, right? And the whole thing would have just gone away. Instead they subjected themselves to years of legal trouble and public scrutiny. Literally years. Just to help this group of activists and attorneys keep it in the courts to eventually make the simple act of being gay legal in all 50 states.
1: For them as individuals, it was probably in their better interest to have dropped it. But they were able to see the potential of
0: what it could be. And... The reason that they said they didn't want to drop it is because they didn't want this to happen to other people. Exactly. These guys were handcuffed. They were dragged out, arrested in front of Lawrence's neighbors. Mm -hmm. They were taken to the station. They were booked. Their possessions were taken. They were told to go take a communal shower like straight guys. Total humiliation. And they had to spend the night in jail. It's such indignity. And it's done
1: through lies, all of it was lies, whether it be Robert Eubanks's lies, who he probably should have spent the night in jail. Right. And then the, the absolute abject lies of the police officers. And so you're getting yeah. humiliated based upon fantasy for people who are trying to save face in the face of their prejudices.
0: It's Just horrible. At the same time, this arrest was unusual so unusual that Quinn actually called the deputy district attorney that night to see if it was even legal to arrest them for having sex in Lawrence's own home. Another way that these laws, and actually laws today are still disproportionately applied, is if a cop comes upon a straight couple having sex in a car, in a park, something like that, it's like, move along, cover up they're not very likely to get arrested right. for public indecency, unless they're doing something really crazy. A gay couple doing the same thing, <laughs> or a gay guy cruising, they're going to get arrested more more likely than not. They're going to get arrested, absolutely. Disproportionate use of, lo- of the laws. Yeah, so he, he wants to know if it's legal to arrest them for having sex in his home. And the thing is that so long as these laws remained enforceable, gay men and sometimes lesbians as well could in theory be arrested at any time including in their bedroom like that nathan broussard who is another one of our heroes although he's only going to be in here for like a second was a closeted clerk who worked in the courts oh, i kind of tried to look up nathan broussard and all i could really find were some photos on tumblr yikes because he's kind of like a bodybuilder type okay okay again he's they come in all types all type And his longtime partner, Mark Walker, was a sergeant in the sheriff's office. Both very manly men, deeply closeted at work at the time. Oh, absolutely. Harris County, guys. Walker has since sadly passed away. Broussard sees this thing come across his desk, and he calls Walker and is like, you won't believe what Quinn just did. And he faxes a copy of the report over to him. And another lady who works there, Cheryl Rapolo... Also sees it and she is outraged and she says, we need to find Lane Lewis. That's it for this episode. In the third episode, we
1: will be discussing its journey through the courts.
0: We're going to be talking a little bit with Lane Lewis. We really need to thank Dale Carpenter for his book, Flagrant Conduct. And everyone who covered all of these stories. Pretty much every reporter in the country was writing about oh, this my case.
1: <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please check us out at kickassqueers.com, where you can find information about all of our back episodes and about us. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at kickassqueercast. Mm-hmm. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to rate, review, and share with your friends, your enemies, But not Officer Quinn. He does not get our
0: episodes. No, no, I want him to hear us talking about his dick.
1: (laughs) Until next time, we hope that all layers out there pulling all of the strings continue to kick ass. It is one of those landmark, I mean, landmark cases. Even super straight people know what Lawrence
0: v. Texas was. and mm. It's its the reason they can do a lot of this stuff.
1: It's the reason why they could have gay sex, mm. too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, th- that's an argument that Texas made before the Supreme Court. Straight people aren't allowed
2: to have gay sex. Either. <laughs> so it's not discriminatory.